0: Hello, and welcome to episode 23 of the Forensic Files. I'm Dr. N. I have a quick promo before we get started with the episode today from one of my favorite podcasts and all around good people behind Hardly Paranormal. Give them a listen and a follow. Hey, how does Bigfoot tell time? I don't know how. He checks his Sasquatch. <laughs> I'm Jerry. And I'm Lacey, and we're the hosts of the Hardly Paranormal Podcast, where every week we examine cases of the strange and unusual, and try to find out what's really going on. Is the Black Monk of Pontefract just a trick of the eye? Could the Loveland Frogman just be a deformed iguana? What about Will-o'-the-Wisps? Poltergeists. Leprechauns? Gateways to hell? We examine them all and more, and discuss if they're real, or if they're hardly paranormal. Catch us every week wherever podcasts are available. And remember it's probably just the wind what do ghosts wear to formal events (laughs) boo ties (laughs) if you love a good pun as much as i do you will absolutely love this podcast they are so entertaining and i look forward to an episode every week today i want to talk about the angie dodge case There's a lot of interesting points in this case that I want to dive into, including a further discussion of false confessions and the use of familial DNA through online databases. First, I'll start with the details of the case. On June 13, 1996, 18-year-old Angie Dodge was found raped and murdered in her apartment in Idaho Falls, Idaho. Murder was pretty rare in Idaho City, still is, averaging about one per year. Angie had been stabbed several times and her throat was even slit. It was clear there was a lot of rage in the attack and a pretty good example of overkill. Angie had friends over earlier that night, though they left a little after midnight and the timeline of events afterwards are unknown until her coworkers came to check on her when she didn't show up at work the next day. Angie had recently moved into her apartment, only about a month prior to her murder. Her mother mentioned in an interview that she spoke with Angie the day prior to her murder, and she made a now chilling comment, I've done something really stupid. Her mother, Carol, didn't pry any further, but it seemed to foreshadow what would happen to her daughter. The brutality of this crime, especially in a town with such low crime rates, doesn't necessarily come across as a random act of violence or some sort of robbery or assault gone wrong. The evidence that was collected at the scene included semen and hair belonging to one suspect. Even with this hard evidence, no key suspects were identified for months after the murder. Police being desperate to find a lead started investigating any acquaintance of Angie. All of these friends were eager to help and were cooperative with police. They were horrified at what happened to their friend and wanted to know what happened to her. Many residents were on edge because they didn't know if there was a killer still among them, capable of other acts of violence. As they questioned Angie's acquaintances, police kept striking out on matching DNA. They quickly came up with a theory that there were multiple perpetrators involved in the murder. This assumption, which is not corroborated by a single piece of evidence would lead to a horrible miscarriage of justice. Police soon had a person of interest when they learned that one of Angie's acquaintances, Ben Hobbs, was arrested for rape and assault with a knife in Nevada. When questioned, Ben denied any involvement, but police believed he was involved and continued to question his friends to see if any of them would implicate Ben in the crime. One of these friends, Chris Tapp, provided police with what they wanted. Chris was 20 years old at the time and had struggled with drug addiction. The investigator who interrogated Chris had actually worked at his school. Chris explicitly says he trusts the investigator and believes they have his best interests in mind. This puts Chris in an incredibly vulnerable position to begin with. It's a clear conflict of interest that investigators took full advantage of. This could have had a significant effect on the way chris approached the interrogation chris was interrogated on nine different days had six polygraph administrations and sat through over 40 hours of questioning a few days after his initial interview chris implicated his friend hobbs in the murder he claimed hobbs confessed to him investigators were perplexed and frustrated when Hobbs' DNA didn't match the DNA from the crime scene. Both he and Chris were effectively ruled out because there was no DNA match, but investigators didn't see it that way. They were convinced Chris was present and involved in the crime. They just had to pry it out of him. They were dead set on proving their theory that there were multiple accomplices, Chris being one of them and they went to great lengths in their interrogations of Chris to get this information from him. That and the fact that Chris had no solid alibi gave investigators a reason to keep interrogating him despite his DNA not matching. Eventually, Chris confessed to being involved in the crime, but how could he do this? I've talked extensively about false confessions in a prior episode, and Chris meets a lot of the criteria that puts a person at risk of falsely confessing to a crime. He was young. He knew and trusted the investigator. They fed him information about the crime and led him on with false promises, mainly the promise of immunity that was based on their own interpretation of the truth. Basically, if they asserted that Chris lied about anything, immunity was off the table. How convenient. Seeing how suggestible Chris was, It was incredibly easy to lead him into telling a lie, which is exactly what they did. Investigators were clearly victims of confirmation bias. They were and continued for a long time to maintain they got the right person and that Chris was involved in the murder. They took full advantage of his trust and manipulated him into confessing. They used highly suggestive and coercive tactics that are clear as day on the tapes of his interrogations. You can see them planting ideas in his head. They suggest at one point that the knife was passed to him and he could have cut her even if it was just once. These details they floated to Chris eventually made it into his confession. They played what we called the hypothetical game. They laid out what they thought happened a hypothetical version of events. So they asked Chris, how do you think it happened? Trying to pry details out of him. At the beginning, Chris denied any involvement. But over time, they broke him down. They told him if you took part, hypothetically, it's okay because you're here talking to us, taking a part in the investigation, cooperating. Except it wasn't okay he ultimately could have been sentenced to death since the death penalty was on the table. Investigators also planted information only the killer would know so that when he recounted those details later, they could say, look, there's proof that he did it. And only the killer would know that. Chris was also corrected many times over the course of the interrogations regarding simple details like where Angie even lived and the layout of the apartment He believed, at first, the crime took place in the living room, a detail investigators later denied he even said. They told him it was in the bedroom, so he changed his story, something they also deny happening. It's amazing how blinded these investigators were to their own incompetence. They effectively altered and distorted Chris's memory. Chris was also shown photos of the crime scene details from which he later used in his confession. Investigators even took him to the crime scene for him to show them how the crime happened, but failed to tape the encounter. There's no excuse for not taping any part of an interrogation. During the unrecorded crime scene visit, investigators claimed this is when Chris said he had held Angie's arms down. Then they had him confirm the details on tape later. There's so much wrong with this on top of all the other manipulation that Chris endured. At one point, they even tried to convince him that he could have repressed the memory of his involvement in the crime after he continuously denies involvement. Chris claimed he was only trying to give investigators what they wanted, saying what they wanted to hear, trying to, quote, save himself. How would confessing save himself Cue the bogus immunity deal. He was offered immunity if he gave truthful information about the crime. Now, since he wasn't actually involved, spoiler alert, he was looking to investigators to feed him that information. Investigators lured him into making false statements by dangling an immunity deal over his head. Then, once he was too far in to back out, he kept repeating information so that the immunity agreement would stand the problem. He wasn't involved, so he couldn't give them the name of the third person, the person whose DNA was actually at the crime scene. Investigators believed that Chris and Hobbs were both involved, but there was no evidence for that, so there had to have been a third person. He tried to implicate another friend at one point whose name was fed to him by police, but that DNA test also came back negative. Conveniently, giving police a reason to void the immunity agreement. The saddest part is Chris believed investigators wanted to help him. He believed them when they said they would get a new deal. In hindsight, it was an obvious manipulation tactic. Interrogators were so delusional and in denial of their own wrongdoing that they pointed to the very tapes that prove their deception as proof that they didn't coerce him absolutely baffling. They denied for years things that are proven on camera. This is a textbook case of psychological coercion. The investigators, when asked if they had considered the possibility that Chris falsely confessed to the crime, stated, and I quote, "'People who confess to crimes they didn't commit don't know the minute details, and Chris knew them.'" Except, again, (laughs) They fed him those details. There is literal proof on camera of it. I could go on for hours about my disdain for these investigators and their absolutely obtuse attitude about it all as recently as 2012, but I want to move on to some other troubling parts of this case. Let's talk about the polygraph. It's trash, we all know that, but there's a whole extra layer of bullshit in this example. When Chris was given his first polygraph, the examiner noted Chris wasn't truthful when asked if he was involved or if he was in the apartment. Merely stating that to a suspect can actually increase the rate of false confessions. Chris even told the examiner he was scared, so heightened arousal, which would throw off polygraph readings. Those fluctuations they saw in his physiological responses could be explained by his nervousness. Further, they used the polygraph sessions to manipulate Chris and his memory. The examiner even states, and I quote, the chart is telling me you were there, which is bullshit. It literally cannot do that. Once Chris realized he had to remain truthful, according to the polygraph, to keep his immunity deal, he would say anything he thought investigators wanted to hear. His goal was to beat the polygraph. Now eventually, they had a coherent confession from Chris, which led them to charging him as an accessory to rape and murder. He was convicted solely on his own confession. Only snippets of the taped interviews were shown to the jury at the trial. Had they watched all the tapes, they would have gotten a very different story. Now you're probably wondering, how could he be charged based solely on his confession, but the other guy, Ben Hobbs, couldn't be charged? It doesn't make sense because he never should have been charged. It wasn't a valid confession by any stretch of the imagination. It wasn't strong enough to charge another man without evidence to back it up, and it shouldn't have been strong enough to charge Chris either. To make matters worse, additional forensic analyses done years later showed no evidence of more than one person being present at the crime scene. That mystery DNA. To make you scream at your phone even more, He was convicted based on his confession alone, a point the judge even made at the trial, that without that confession, there would be no case. Yikes. The weight that confessions hold, especially 24 years ago, before much of the research was well-known and accepted, was really problematic. Now remember, the death penalty was still on the table. Chris begged for leniency, and the judge did spare him, giving him life for the murder and 20 years for the rape. An unlikely ally and catalyst for Chris's case gaining media attention was Angie's own mother, Carol. She wanted to know the truth and she didn't believe Chris's confession after watching every single interrogation tape. She was convinced it was a false, coerced confession and sought out experts to help explain why it happened to help advocate for his release. Carol reached out to Stephen Drizzen, one of the lawyers for Brendan Dassey now, for his help understanding how confessions and false confessions work. He validated her belief that the confession was invalid. The circumstances under which Chris was interrogated are absolutely unacceptable today. They found his breaking point where he would say just about anything to end the intense interrogation. Interestingly, Chris didn't recant his confession until 2001. He could have been so affected by the interrogation process itself that it created false memories he actually believed to be true for years. There's even video evidence that corroborates Chris's assertions that his confession was coerced. Even so, when he tried to appeal the conviction based on his assertion, the Supreme Court affirmed the conviction in 2001. Eventually, though, he got the attention of Judges for Justice and the Idaho Innocence Project. Both organizations helped him get the rape conviction vacated in 2017 and the murder sentence reduced to time served. Without Carroll leading the charge, there would not have been momentum that got these organizations to take his case. He was released in 2017, but that begged the question, who raped and murdered Angie? Now, up until a year ago, we could have had a healthy debate over whether he was actually involved. I'm happy to report that this is 100% a false confession case, and Chris wasn't involved at all. Police finally found a DNA match in May of 2019, only a year ago. In late 2018, investigators decided to try using familial DNA searching to find a match to DNA found at the crime scene. This had recently worked for finding the Golden State Killer, and they used the same system, GEDmatch, which is a public repository for autosomal DNA. And they were lucky. They found a match to the perpetrator's grand or possibly great-grandparents. From there, they had a lot of work to do. They filled in the genealogy to identify six male descendants of the couple in the database. From there, they narrowed it down to one man who had lived in Idaho at the time of Angie's murder. This was unfortunately not a match, though, and after more investigation into the family tree, they identified a seventh descendant, Brian Lee Dripps Sr. He lived in Idaho Falls at the time of the murder, and they were able to match his DNA to the DNA from the crime scene using a discarded cigarette butt. It was discovered that Drips lived across the street from Angie's apartment at the time of the murder, Giving him obvious opportunity. Had investigators not been so convinced that she knew the perpetrator and that it had been someone connected to her acquaintances and Chris, they may have given Drips more thought. To make matters worse, there is evidence that police had contacted Drips at the beginning of the investigation, but they never collected his DNA. His alibi was shaky at best. He had apparently gone out drinking but returned to his apartment during the window in which they believe Angie was murdered, and then left again. Dripps told police when he was arrested in 2019 that he had never intended to kill Angie, only rape her. He thought she was alive when he left, allegedly, which doesn't really make any sense. And he claimed that he had been holding the knife to her throat as he raped her, and it accidentally slipped, cutting her throat. That's the injury she died from. It would make sense if there weren't any more stab wounds. I could probably wrap my head around maybe it was an accident, but I'm sure there's more to this story. But I doubt we'll ever know the full truth. Drips is awaiting his trial, set to begin in June of 2021. Since his confession to the police, he lawyered up, and he's actually pled not guilty, claiming he was never read his Miranda rights before making his confession. I'll provide updates in the coming years as more information is available. Thank you for listening to episode 23. Check out the podcast featured in the promo, Hardly Paranormal, details included in the notes section for this episode. If you want to support this podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends. You can listen to the Forensic Files on the website at the-forensic-files.captivate.fm, which is also linked in the episode notes. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. All music you hear in this episode was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Young.